so perfectly a little nugget of early 90s goodness. But the thing that made me the happiest was the notion that the Hard Rock Cafe was oh. ever a cool place to be. Right, right. <laughs> it was so good. So. Everybody. Welcome back to the Thunderdome Gladiators. That's right, it's time for another sun-soaked episode of Cinema Ball. I'm Ebony Astor, that's little E, capital B, little O, little N, ampersand, capital Y, and then three <laughs> asterisks. Uh, and then asters in cuneiform. And I'm joined by the sweetest peach on the tree, Miss Carolyn Pettit. Hey, Carol. What? We're not talking about Call Me By Your Name, Ebony. We are here to talk about... <laughs> about Aren't we L- always, in a way, talking well, about Call Me By Your Name? Well, in a way, right? We, yeah, I suppose at my rating, you know, all of my ratings, you know, uh, uh, for Cinema Ball, you, you can think of them as, you know, how would I rate this film in direct comparison to Call Me By Your Name? That's the standard by which all other films are judged. Say- I, I totally get it. If we want to move to a hundred peach system, yeah, uh, as a as a rating mechanism, I am here for it. Fantastic. Uh, uh, yeah. So everybody, this is episode eleven, the third episode of the second round. So I hope you're good at math. Cinema Ball is a ridiculous excuse for Carol and I to talk about movies. In this round, I am your feisty attacker, and my goal is the deceptively easy to get to goal film, The Legend of Billie Jean. <laughs> She was a fugitive to the police. A sensation to the media. And a symbol of courage to young people everywhere to fight for what's right. Where is she? Everywhere. The Legend of Billie Jean, directed by Matthew Robbins, featuring Pat Benatar's hit song, Invincible, rated PG-13. A forgotten 1985 teen classic and surely underrated Pat Benatar music video. Caro is on defense and she is doing a frankly stellar job of preventing us from ever getting close to the legend of Billie Jean. Last week, Carol faked left and took us from Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula to the 1991 Steve Martin vehicle LA story via the always delightful actor Richard E. Grant. Will I go for the twofer connection and use Richard E. Grant to connect us to the iconic British film With Null and I? Stay tuned to the end of the episode and find out. That's right. At the end of this episode, it will be my turn to reveal where I'm shooting the cinema ball. But for right now, let's retract the top on our convertible, take it to the 405, and surrender to the Southern California surreality of L.A. Story. Carol, get us started. All right. So L.A. Story. Uh, First of all, uh, what you just said put me in mind of, of what I think is a... Uh, an interesting minor little cultural difference that I've observed between LA, between Los Angeles, where I lived for you know a good twenty plus years of my life, and uh, and the Bay Area. You said you know take the the four hundred five or take yeah. to the four hundred five, um, which is definitely you know in LA. You, um, in my experience, people say the four hundred five, you know the five, the one hundred one, etc. Um, but my understanding anyway is that at least you know here in the Bay Area, prevailing cultural trends dictate that you refer to them as 405 5 you know 101 with no article with no the preceding them so um yeah just a little observation there you do the same thing with bart right like it's just oh yeah take bart to whatever right and i remember um saying something like when i was in town uh one month and was like, oh yeah, blah, blah, I got to take the Bart somewhere. And you and Anita clowned me like the gentle older sisters that you are for Mm -hmm. saying the Bart. I'm Uh never going to get over it. Yeah. Yeah. We really, we really, uh, We'll never let live that down. I know. It's a hard knock life. Um, so, L.A. Story. Boy, uh, 1991 film. You you called it a Steve Martin vehicle. Uh, you know, I, I uh, and not to take issue with you specifically, but I always find vehicle is a, 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 is a way of a kind of um, dismissive, you know, way of saying like, oh, this is just a, a film that this person did. And maybe this is just my... Um, sense of what how people use that word or the connotations of that word um you know like if i call a film a as i have previously on this podcast a jean-claude van damme vehicle 
Um, I think there's a sense in which I'm saying that the film itself is of little interest or importance other than as a way of giving us an hour and a half or two hours of Jean-Claude Van Damme, you know, punching and kicking people or something like that. This film is, you know, it is written by Steve Martin. Um, and to me, it has always been kind of the quintessential Steve Martin film in the sense that, in the sense that, of course, he's been a... a an actor in uh, in a number of you know films that have um, that are beloved by by some at least for you know planes trains and automobiles and so on. Um, but I really feel like uh, this film uh, is the, is an ex- exhibition of Steve Martin's kind of sensibilities as like a writer and an artist because yeah. of the ways in which it, it sort of blends just zany absurd comedy and also like a a deep sense of uh or an attempt anyway at at a deep sense of of beauty right and Mm -hmm. artistic depth i guess you know i i I don't want to um you know act as if you know this is any sort of a defense but i i would like to uh suggest that sometimes my desire to make a pun gets the better of me and so no part of calling it a steve martin vehicle was was about something that i hope we get into later which is when um the way in which this film you know makes a uh, car culture in yeah. la one of the characters uh, absolutely in the film, which i love right but i also yeah. do think that as much as i this film you're, you're absolutely right in that this film is quintessentially steve martin the the man the writer the artist the intellectual steve martin um in a way although one of the things that i noted as i was watching it it was like you know what as as entertaining as i find him my favorite Steve Martin film is Roxanne. And I was thinking like, this is the exact same character in a lot of ways, you know? And this is a character that he plays so well, this sort of, you know, as you say, zany, you know, kind of wacky and yet incredibly intelligent um, man who's always sort of slightly removed from the ridiculousness of the people around him while, you know, nevertheless engaging in his own sort of, you know, highly personal brand of ludicrousness. Um, and so to me, like, I just, I can't imagine anyone else in this particular role. Like it's so very much a Steve Martin piece. So that's. Yeah. Oh, I, absolutely. And so this film is directed by uh, Mick Jackson and, um, you know, often um, on this cast, I, uh, we talk a lot about directors and I give a lot of credit to directors. And, I, but in this case, I, I don't want to, I don't mean this as any kind of criticism of, of Mick Jackson, uh, who, you know, has, um, he's directed films like The Bodyguard, you know, starring uh, Kevin Costner and Whitney Houston. Uh, he directed the, uh, the thriller Volcano with Tommy Lee Jones and Anne Heche. Um, and he's been active even in recent years. You know, a few years ago, he directed a, a film, um, the, the, uh, called Denial, a, 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 an intense drama about, uh, you know, rooted in, in fact, about um, uh, a, a Holocaust denier. And that film starred uh, Rachel Weiss, I believe. Um, so, uh, but I, I think of Mick Jackson as a director who isn't so much one who brings sort of his own sensibilities or, or stamp, you know, to a film as one who kind of just looks at the script that he's given and and does uh what he can to uh, to best serve the script as it exists and so i while mick jackson is the director of this film and certainly deserves credit uh, for that i i my sense is that he channeled his energy as a director to doing whatever he could to bring steve martin's vision to life for this yeah. film right so uh, i I tend to think of this more as a Steve Martin film, in a sense, than uh, than a Mick Jackson film, despite the fact that he is the director. Um, yeah. So let's talk a bit about about this film. Yes, it's uh, the, the the plot and and stuff. Uh, Steve Martin plays a, a man named Harris K. Telemacher. My name is Harris K. Telemacher. I live in Los Angeles, and I've had seven heart attacks, all imagined. That is to say. 
I was deeply unhappy, but I didn't know it because I was so happy all the time. I have a favorite quote about L.A. by William Shakespeare. He said, this other Eden, demi-paradise, this precious stone set in the silver sea, this earth, this realm, this Los Angeles. Anyway, this is what happened to me, and I swear it's all true. Uh, he is a... Um a wacky weekend weatherman on the on a local LA news channel. Um, this film is very much uh, a film of its time. It is uh, the early '90s, and um, and I think there's no clearer indication, perhaps, of the 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 fact that this film is so much a product of its time than the fact that Steve Martin's car has a has a suction cup Garfield uh, on, you know, attached to the rear window. And if you're not old enough to remember, uh, at least in L.A., I don't know, because that's where I lived at the time, and I don't know if this was a thing in other parts of the country, but in L.A., like, probably in the in that, around that time, for whatever reason, <laughs> a huge percentage of cars had... Suction cup Garfields attached yeah. to them. It, it it was a ludicrous phenomenon, um, but um, so Steve Martin uh, <clears throat> plays a man who um, who is at a place and he's you know he may, I think Martin himself was probably around forty five when he made mm -hmm. this film and his character of Harris. Uh, he opens the film by saying um, something like. I was deeply unhappy, but I didn't know it because I was so busy being happy all the time. And I think that that, you know, speaks to, yeah, he's a he's a man. He has a relationship with a woman played by Mary Lou Henner. It's not, um, it doesn't go beyond, like, the surface level. They don't, like, really care about each other as people. They're just kind of going through the motions of being a couple. Um and uh, and you know he meets a woman, uh, a, a British journalist named Sarah, played by Victoria Tennant, who actually was his partner um, at the time, and she just completely shakes up everything you know in his life, in his soul, in his heart, in his mind, and um, the rest of the film is a, a kind of. Uh, L.A. infused, whimsical, ethereal, borderline at times spiritual kind of romance, uh, uh, you know, concerning his pursuit of Sarah. L.A. Story. When I when I was a teen, this was one of my absolute favorite films. I wow. adored this film. Its romantic sensibilities. I found it incredibly romantic. I found mm -hmm. this film. It's um, uh, the ways in which Harris is so stirred up and shaken and destabilized by Sarah, uh, I found it so romantic, and 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 um, it builds up to a tremendous sort of climax um, in which uh, Sarah's going back to London, um, uh, and Steve Martin's Harris's yearning for her is so powerful. That uh, that uh, it um, basically you know causes the the polarity of the Earth to change, fog <laughs> to roll in as her plane is about to take off, so that her plane can't take off, and they are together. And um, and of course, though watching this film today, I cannot help but think about how how much this film is at least very much adjacent to what I would cons what I would call the the stalking as romance trope because mm -hmm. we have a situation here in which basically the conflict is that oh Sarah really wants to be with Harris she just can't like bring herself to admit it to herself and to him and so you know Steve Martin's love for her has to prevent her from literally prevent her from being able to leave such that they are brought together in the end. And I couldn't help but think um, 
you know, as romantic, uh, uh, it still stirs some part of my heart, this scenario in which the strains of Enya's uh, song, oh, Exile, boy. build up, and, you know, as the fog is rolling in, and the storm begins, and the rain starts pouring, like, I, I, am, I cannot help but be exhilarated by it, and yet I cannot also help but think... You know, if the if the roles were reversed, if this were a romance about a woman, uh, where the woman is like the central character and her, you know, male object of affection slash, you know, love is trying to leave and go back home to London, it would feel like fatal. It would, you know, when a woman has these kinds of intense yeah. uh, feelings, it's fatal attraction. When a man has them, it's romance right it's mm-hmm. like oh my god his love is so powerful what a powerful force it taps into the elements i i love any movie that allows us to explore your soft gooey center mm. caro uh <laughs> we we have often talked about the fact that my programming does not allow me to feel real human emotions and so the closest i get to it is talking to you about the things that make you feel you know it's interesting so i'm thinking about when i first saw this movie so like you i was a teenager um, when this film came out. And obviously it was much closer in age at that point to the character that Sarah Jessica Parker plays. So right. in this film, um, Harris, Steve Martin's character, um, happens to meet uh, Sarah Jessica Parker, whose name is Sandy, capital S, capital whatever. The jo- yes. You get the joke. Um, so he, he meets Sandy at a clothing store and she's this sort of definition of this kind of manic pixie dream girl. Right, so she's very whimsical and um, and I don't want to say flighty, but you know there's something about her well, that no, doesn't she is. Quite I mean, touch the ground. In fact, she's literally always twirling. She's um, always she's twirling so and- much, like she's quintessential, like just positive spirit. Um, and although the film doesn't quite make fun of her, it is there is a sort of like gentle mockery at her particular brand of like L.A. positivity with you know the her belief in high colonics and things like right. That. Right? And I do appreciate that the film is is critical of Harris's involvement with her, right? It does, like, uh, uh, at least I found it to be so. Like, um, Sarah, you know, tells him, oh, you know, oh, obviously you just broke up with someone because when men break up with someone, they always run around with someone who's far too young for them. Yeah, I think the film does do that. But I think, you know, so there, the film does display those moments of self-awareness, but... I think the difference between uh, Sandy's character and Sarah's character is a difference pretty much of degree, not of kind, because Sarah is herself a manic pixie dream woman in a lot of ways. There are moments where I thought like the reason why Harris is so attracted to you is because you represent a difference uh, of the sort of woman that he's dating now, who's, you know, very superficial and, you know, uh, very materialistic, et cetera. And so even though you're kind of a cool character, the reason why he's so drawn to you is because he's so dissatisfied with what he currently has. And that's kind of, you know, illustrated most clearly in the fact that she plays the tuba and this is supposed to be this is one of the moments where the the whimsy of the film you know i to my mind anyway kind of got away from itself and i just thought this is a little bit too twee you know Mm -hmm. this idea that like this this um you know, kind of quintessentially uh, eccentric and you know i i believe we're supposed to assume maybe you know moneyed English woman, uh, her ex-husband played by Richard E. Grant, makes mention of the fact that their mothers hunt together. And so, you know, I'm thinking. Yeah, and we we do briefly. You know, so just the idea that like, oh, this, this, you know, kind of kooky English woman, you know, by virtue of the fact that she's older, at least, and more mature, her brand of whimsy is, you know, presented as being more acceptable in the film. And I'm like, eh, it's still a little bit flat to me. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think that there's there's no denying uh, that this is a, a film that presents a, a, a an experience of Los Angeles, a vision of Los Angeles that is primarily only accessible to and experienced by privileged white people oh yeah right? um it's uh, it's the la of uh fancy restaurants mm-hmm. and um and uh you know class uh, upper class uh you know getaways to um to hotels in, in um santa barbara or whatever yeah. wherever the el Paulo del mar the chicken of the sea yes uh <laughs> the big the hotel they go to is um and you know, so there's um, uh, 
uh, in my mind, like a really funny and great sort of sequence um, that that involves this restaurant called uh, Lidio, um, which is the sort of in the in the film that the the hot new like. Uh, Los Angeles dining spot, uh, which is uh, ruled with an iron fist by a, a fantastic <laughs> Patrick Stewart, uh, you know, in a comic a sort of supporting role. Um, but like one of the only times we see a person of color in this film is uh, when uh, when uh, Harris and Sarah and other folks are dining at Lidio. There's a um, uh, yeah, like a young black man is their waiter, and he like wraps yeah. the their sort of options, right? The specials or like the menu or whatever. He wraps it to them, and like that is sort of the extent of which to which black people exist in this film's version of Los Angeles. Yeah, which you know, a, a, a comment could be made. You know, an argument could be made that for people who exist in the in the sphere um, that Harris and his coterie exist in, their only proximity to certain class segments or racial difference is through you know the service industry, right? But that's the, the film is not making a comment on that. I I have to say. Going back, knowing that we were going to be talking about this movie, one of the things that I had to sort of steal myself for is exactly what you're talking about, which is that this is presented as L.A. story, right? Not an L.A. story, when that yeah. is exactly what it is. Because, and, and this feeds into this larger kind of cultural conversation about Los Angeles as being purely superficial, purely about artifice, sort of a, a plastic city, um, which is an incredibly frustrating and dismissive take on Los Angeles, not least because it entirely eliminates, A, the, the long history that LA had before it became an industry town, right? And the, the many things that people do here that have nothing to do with the business of LA, but also it completely, you know, sort of elides all of the people of color who live yep. here. And so, you know, there is an LA story that has only Latinx people in it. And that uh, makes just as much, if not more sense than this film that's just about upper middle class white people. But that's not the story we get unless it's a story that's specifically marketed as being, you know, a, a niche film. When people say like, you know, oh, LA, there's nothing to it. It's not like, you know, New York or Boston or Chicago that's got some real depth. I'm like, well, where are you going? Like, if you're only going to the Beverly Center, then yeah. <laughs> but- Right. You know, if you never spend time in like Boyle Heights or, you know, you know, South Central L.A. or whatever, like, yeah, those places are entirely different. But the, those places are, are not even given uh, the benefit of being considered L.A. except by the people who live there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I couldn't help but think a few times as I was watching this film uh, for this podcast about uh, the relationship, um, uh, say, you know, in the in the 70s and 80s. Um, between, you know, Woody Allen films and New York, right? We had this vision, probably the, the the dominating cinematic vision of New York was, and a lot of people would still say is, you know, mm -hmm. is Woody Allen. It's films like Manhattan and, and stuff like mm -hmm. that, such that when, you know, Spike Lee's films like Do the Right Thing started coming along, they are, in my mind, a much more honest, uh, realistic depiction of of New York City life because they acknowledge and they, they, they center the collision of right. classes and races and, and, and things that exist within, um, within New York. Uh, and, you know, and so similarly, yeah, I mean, I was thinking about this film and how, how essential, you know, films like, uh, I mean, I guess Boys in the Hood was the f one film that kept coming to my mind as like, an alternative L.A. story, right? The kind of the L.A. story that this film uh, is not at all interested in telling. And I mean, mm -hmm. I mean, of course, I want, I mean, cities are multifaceted. Our experiences of them can be multifaceted. I mean, I, I think that this is a, a valid and, and beautiful representation of Los Angeles. I think, but I do think that we need to be cognizant of, of the extent to which it it ignores and erases like so much of Los Angeles although so gosh like early on in this film there's a a joke a gag um when 
Steve, when when Harris and uh, Trudy, his you know his girlfriend played by Mary Lou Henner, in the early parts of the film, are uh, driving down the freeway, and it's it's like <laughs> yes, it's yes. first day of spring or first day of summer or something like that or whatever. Yeah, it's a, like it's the it's a spring equinox. And Harris is like, oh shit, open season on the LA freeway, and and it becomes this thing. Like the gag is like everyone is just shooting at each other, right? There's an old yeah. woman behind the wheel of, like, a big Cadillac or something, and she's, like, shooting at people, and it's just the whole of Los Angeles is just engaged in this activity. And I remember being, as much as I loved this film when I was younger, like, I remember being uncomfortable in some ways with that joke because I I felt like it was this weird acknowledgement of like gang violence as yeah. a, like a, a thing that is associated or and certainly was then with Los Angeles but completely divorcing it from the context and from like the cultural forces that actually kind of give rise to to gang violence and yeah. um yeah i don't know it still it still seems like this um this uncomfortable um, uh, sort of acknowledgement within L.A. Story of things that L.A. Story otherwise kind of ignores altogether. But mm-hmm. even in acknowledging those associations, it, it, it doesn't in any way, like, actually confront, you know, the issue. It just uses it as substance for a joke. Um, right. Right. And I don't know. You know th- that particular scene. And then, so the film itself, if you haven't seen it, um, is very much peppered with these um, moments of sort of fantasy. Uh, one of the things that uh, that critics talk about in this film is the way, um, the, the, the very deft way that Steve Martin as writer has has built a has built this world um, and seeded it with Shakespearean references. Mm-hmm. So if you're you know English major nerd uh, or whatever, you will you will catch you know a lot of these things. Whether it's you know Hamlet, which is a pretty obvious one that comes up via this scene with a with a grave digger when Harris and Sarah you know go for a um, a walk through what I assume is supposed to be Hollywood Forever uh, cemetery, and then uh, lines from things like As You Like It. There's a reference to the Tempest uh, thrown in there a couple of yeah. times, but so and 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 you know Steve Martin has talked about the film being a sort of you know reimagining of a Midsummer Night's Dream, um, you know the the narrative as a whole. But I think you know this idea like of yeah as you say that that scene with the open season on the freeways, that particular segment does seem a bit tonally different from the the soft you know kind of um, whimsical and cotton candy almost uh, bright colors of the the other LA fantasies we get uh, in this film because yeah. you never you never know when that stuff is gonna happen when something ridiculous is is going to happen from the sort of you know um, small things like Harris uh, pretending he has a, um, a a dog barking as a security system, like a a tape of a dog barking as a security system to him, you know, making his own way by driving like a, you know, race car driver through neighborhoods or whatever. You never know how that stuff is going to go. So that particular one, yeah, of the shooting on the freeway, like, okay, this is funny. We get it. But it does seem to come maybe from a different movie, you know, something that's more slapstick. Yeah, I I mean, but on the whole, I have to say that I... um. I really admire, uh, or at least I, I, I think uh, I, I'm fascinated by the way that I feel like this film carves out a tonal space that sets it in my mind apart from just about any other film. I cannot think of another film that occupies this kind of, um, this bridge between um, like outright sort of the kind of zaniness that, you know, we uh, this sort of akin to the kind of zaniness we we associate with films like The Naked Gun and Airplane almost, but but married to a, a deep kind of poignancy. I mean, um, you know, early on, there's this moment when, you know, Harris is still in this kind of phase of his life where 
uh, he's empty. He's searching. He's searching for some kind of meaning, you know, before Sarah really comes along and shake thing, shakes things up in his life. And he says, um, uh, I, he winds up quoting the, the Shakespeare line of um, life is a, is a tale full of sound and fury told by an idiot uh, signifying nothing. And this moment is, is highlighted by uh then there's like a a, a a like a slow motion shot of like a cat meowing kind of dramatically and and it's just this very interesting choice because it's sort of like it its meanings are not in any way clear it doesn't it, it you could sort of talk about like well is it trying to be a kind of parody of the sort of thing that we that some people would disparagingly call like a pretentious art house film mm-hmm. or is it actually sincere in its efforts to evoke some kind of deeper meaning and I, and I absolutely believe that it is very much sincere like in its efforts to evoke some kind of deeper meaning in fact I think that for all of its um uh, moments of absurdity I mean obviously like I wouldn't, um, I don't respond that well to irony. I find this film, for all of its kind of flaws and, and troubles, I find it very sincere and very open-hearted, and that's part of why I, part of why I can't help but be so moved by it at times. Yeah, um, absolutely. I don't, <clears throat> I think that, you know, in as much as Harris, um, <laughs> definitely can feel, you know, sort of, you know, frustrated or taken aback or just, you know, have his mind blown by some of the more absurd people or situations that he finds himself in. Nevertheless, um, his large, the larger atmosphere of LA is something that he absolutely loves, you know? So there are parts that he would like to dismiss, parts that he maybe would like to 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 make over, but nevertheless, the the beauty that exists in LA, um he is he is so ready to embrace it, you know? Um and I think one of the ways that this is shown is his the performance art pieces that he does basically just for himself and his best friend <laughs> whereby he roller skates through you know, these very elite, elevated spaces, these art museums, right? It's not to suggest that there's anything ludicrous about high art or the people who enjoy um, art, you know? It's just about, you know, uh, kind of loving it and embracing the silly um, in that space, but with this wholesale, just sort of like passion um, for human creativity, it's it's rather it's it, rather than a, a diminishment of it, it's a way of explaining it and just being like, you know, the the way this makes me feel can't simply be expressed by me standing in front of a picture and and talking about it. You know, I I have to do something that kind of expresses physically um, what this makes me feel. Yeah, ab- exactly. I mean, um, boy, though you mentioned um, his. Uh his best friend. I really wanted more of, uh, of Harris's like lesbian friends. Yeah. Uh, you know, we get so little of them. Mm-hmm. Um, I was, I was disappointed. I'm always disappointed that we don't um, spend more time with them and learn, learn more about them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, Steve Martin himself is famously a, a, a lover of the arts. I mean, he has a, a, uh, you know, quite a collection of paintings himself. Um, you know, he. Uh, I I don't think that the LACMA that LACMA would let just anyone go roller skating around mm-hmm. there. But um, but at least at the time, um, around the time this film was made, I think there was like Steve Martin had given so much money or don't you know to LACMA that there was like a room named after him in the museum. So mm-hmm. you know he had a. And probably for, still has a special relationship uh, with with that museum and 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 you know with with the art world uh, more broadly. Although uh, I'm not going to make this an official uh, Samuvier recommendation, um, I I do want to encourage people since we're we're talking about the art. Uh, I do want to encourage people to maybe take a moment to check out some David Hockney. Um, mm-hmm. 
you know, because, <laughs> and you, you will know why, when I say that, why I think you should check something out. And I, the, the way that David Hockney captured, a, as an expatriate, captured a particular kind of LA light um, and, and personality and, and soul is, has been, you know, kind of unrivaled. And I think, you know, there's, there's certainly, there's certainly scenes in this film that I think are direct, um, kind of homages to Hockney. Of course, I would also follow it up by going back to something we were talking about earlier, which is that you're going to talk about David Hockney, maybe also look at some Judith Baca, you know, like LA is not just all white people who come here from abroad. Although, you know, much is made of the fact that, you know, everyone from LA is apparently a transplant. No, they aren't. No, they aren't. They are so many people, you know, like mm, just a, a certain kind of person is a, uh, is, is a, a transplant here. Um, I want to talk a little bit about LA more. I don't know. Maybe it's it's not so much about Los Angeles, but the kind of uh, masculinity um, or the different versions of it that we get here, um, and the the way in which they're they're portrayed as being particularly kind of LA men, uh-huh. uh, and how you how you read them. So you know you have. Uh, Characters like the one played by Kevin Pollock, who is um, Harris's agent, who we find out is um, been <laughs> has been having an affair with Harris's girlfriend, and and to my mind one of the fu- since, funniest lines of the film since Harris the finds out that 80s. it's been going on for three years, and yeah. he says this has been going on since the eighties. Yeah. I don't know why that, that cracks me up so much, but it totally did. But you've got Kevin Pollock, you've got uh, Larry Miller. Uh, you've got Sam McMurray. You've got Richard E. Grant, obviously. Yes, um, and yes. and um, and Steve Martin. So you know, I, I want to hear from you, Carol, like how you like your reading and your take on those characters because it's very interesting to me that even though we have oh, and Woody Harrelson, you know, making a you know couple of yeah. appearances in it as yep. Harris's boss. Um, although you have you know a, a significant number of dudes in the film. Nevertheless, the people with the most speaking time, with the most kind of depth, you know, just the the most presence on screen are women, apart from Steve Martin, right? And you know, I think it's definitely part of that um, that kind of expectation that that straight men uh, are only able to achieve some sort of like emotional awareness through the intervention of women. Um, and so, you know, that kind of feminine energy right. is assumed to be, you know, kind of a natural, um, you know, uh, impetus for them, you know, making these realizations. So whether that's his, fr- his best friend, you know, his ex-girlfriend, um, you know, this new exciting sexual partner he meets in Sarah Jessica Parker, Sarah, the new love interest, whatever. Um, but I found the men very interesting, although we don't see very much of them. So I wanted to hear your take on them. Yeah. I mean, I, I there's, you know, a, a line in this film um that I, you know i think is quite funny where uh so harris and sarah are having an argument on the beach sarah's ex-husband is roland played by richard e grant harris did not know that uh roland was sarah's ex-husband um and you know he he says something like you know you're you're running around you know i i find out that you're running around with my best friend and <laughs> and sarah says your best friend, you've, you've never even seen him without me. Like, mm-hmm. the only times that that Harris and Roland have even spent together are when, you know, are when Sarah's around. And, 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 and Harris replies, it doesn't matter. There's a bond among men. <laughs> yes. Um, by making that joke and, and, and in the way that it frames all of the, those kind of male interactions and relationships, I mean, they... They do take a, a definitely like a backseat um, to any of the, the the connections with with women. There's a there's famously a deleted scene from this film uh, in in which John Lithgow uh, plays this legendary Hollywood agent named Harry Zell, who whose mm-hmm. name we still hear in the film a few times, but the the scene has been completely removed. So with that, I mean, yes. There, there isn't much development of, uh, of, of kind of male relationships. Uh, and I, I think that Steve Martin's 
masculinity, Harris's masculinity, then, you know, takes center stage. And it's this, it is this kind of masculinity that we can, on one hand, we can look at and say, oh, he's so sensitive, he's so romantic, he's, you know, he's so, you know, intelligent, etc. But that it's easy in doing that to obscure, you know, or sort of obfuscate the ways in which he shares so many of the traits that can be so troubling in men on screen. The, the, again, the that kind of dominance, the ways in which, I mean, uh, as I, the ways in which, as I said before, this is a film in which the dramatic conflict entirely arises out of Harris kind of pushing through Sarah's defenses and mm-hmm. not listening to what she says, right? But kind of, it's one of those films where we in the audience can say, well, okay, but, but, but really deep in her heart, she wants to be with him. She just doesn't know how to, um, to give, give herself over to that. Uh, right. There's a a line that is repeated in the film a few times, let your mind go and your body will follow. And the central conflict in the film almost seems to be that Sarah cannot quote unquote, let her mind go. And so therefore like she keeps putting up these defenses, but Oh, of course she really wants to be with Harris. And so it falls upon him uh, through his masculinity and, you know, to, to, to persevere, uh, to, to break down her defenses and to, to, in the end, like ultimately truly wield the, the, again, the, the, the elements, the forces of weather uh, to to prevent her from being able to to leave. Um, yeah, it's 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 that kind of you know sensitive, smart, but still uh, uh, um, troubling <laughs> model of masculinity. I think that that this film ultimately kind of centers and celebrates yeah so you know i don't want us to forget you know that yeah as as sensitive as thoughtful as funny you know as 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 witty you know as as harris is he is nevertheless the dude who you know eyeballs up a topless woman in (laughs) the you know the dressing room of the story that sandy works in he is also the woman who goes out on a date with sandy and then you know has the nerve to be upset with his girlfriend for revealing that she's been cheating on him you know, so yeah, there there are ways in which you know, like his demands um, are, like his motivations are rationalized because you know it's Harris. You know he's a good guy. It's yeah. okay that he does these things. It's like eh, no, these 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 specific actions are kind of shitty. Right. The film, with regard to that, it it you know it it it, it has its cake and eats it too in the sense that uh, when Harris first starts pursuing uh, Sandy. Um, there's a voiceover, you know, where he says, uh, you know, there were two reasons for what was about to happen. Um, you know, one of them is that, you know, I was a big, dumb male. Mm -hmm. And so he's like criticizing Harris for getting involved with Sandy. And yet at the same time, there's the kind of throwing up your arms and being like, but this is just the way men are. Like, this is just the way it is kind of thing, as opposed to like, like an actual kind of, um criticism or or uh, you know of that kind of behavior right yeah yeah absolutely all right Carol, do you have any final thoughts before we wrap up our discussion of la story with a round of fab five uh no i think i will i think i will get my final thoughts uh squeezed in via the fab five so yeah i'm ready to squeeze them in squeeze them in all right so yeah now comes the point of each show where we round it up round things out with a super delicious tasty morsel of a segment uh this week we are once again doing the fab five furious five in which we run down five moments or details about the film that we loved or hated so Karas, you take it away <laughs> uh number one uh patrick stewart uh, as the <laughs> again the sort of dictator of Lidio. there's a great um uh, scene or, or a little exchange at Lidio where uh so uh, chevy chase in a cameo arrives at the restaurant and um he says to patrick stewart the maitre d uh you know um 
uh, well, uh, the maitre d' says, uh, you know, the same table as last time, and Chevy Chase says, no, I want a good one th this time. Maitre d' says, I'm sorry, that is not possible. Um, and uh, and Chevy Chase says, you know, uh, part of the new cruelty. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Patrick Stewart's like, I'm afraid so. And then then another party, you know, walks up, and we and we see and hear Patrick Stewart say, yes, what do you want? And he's uh -huh. like... This, like, predates the soup Nazi on Seinfeld, I think. And, and you know, mm -hmm. for me, this is sort of the quintessential, you know, we, there's references to the soup Nazi have become inescapable in our culture. But for me, Patrick Stewart as the the uh, maitre d' of Lydia will always be the quintessential kind of rude, uh, yeah. <laughs> pers you know, restaurant proprietor that people just put up with because, because oh, it's the, the food is so good. Or it's this, you know, yes, what do you want? Yes. Um uh, secondly, um, I mean, I just, I find this movie just so quotable, uh, in, in, in so many ways. Uh, I'll, I'll just highlight one line in particular, uh, that, uh, so, um, uh, my friends and I, um, if, uh, probably the line we would quote most from this film, um, is like if, if one of us just ever said or did something really, really just silly, goofy, absurd, you know, uh, um, foolish, just, just deliberately, uh, ludicrous, another one of us might respond with like, hey, John, uh, uh, more wacky, less egghead, more wacky, <laughs> less egghead, because they're early in this film, um, after Steve Martin does one of his, uh, incredibly ridiculous, uh, weather routines, um, you know, Woody Harrelson as his boss comes like as comes along and is like giving him notes like that was some intellectual shit you were doing out there. Hey, you know, Harris, more wacky, less egghead. And like uh -huh. Harris, like, oh, let me write that down. Okay, yeah, more wacky, less egghead. Like you cannot get it any more wacky than what he was already doing. Yeah. So that's two, three, um, a probably just like the way that this film um creates a sense of like a. Uh, a placid surface um, uh, above, like, uh, uh, just um, really deep, uh, powerful emotions. There's a, um, a scene when Sarah and Harris are at this little formal dinner, and it's just, like, so incredibly boring. Um, you have this act, you know, one of the actors is is just droning on giving a speech about whatever little um, philanthropic endeavor they've been involved in. And, you know, we get this just great lines that are, are so perfect in their, in their sheer boredom and dullness where he's saying things like, and Ron felt like I did. Um, <laughs> and, and, and uh, but in the midst of this, you know, uh, Harris and Sarah kind of have this very powerful, a moment together they go they go out and they and and you know um I, as troubling as i think the gender dynamics of the film's uh uh love story can be like i'm still very drawn to how the film presents love as something that at times can and should be disruptive right Harris's mm -hmm. life is so is so he's become so complacent you know he writes bored beyond belief on the window at home and I just I, I like the, the, this notion of love uh, you know of Harris as as someone who needs to be like shaken out of of this state that he's in and because because I you know I do think that sometimes that is what what love needs to do you know the mm -hmm. love need love needs to like fuck us up a little bit. Mm -hmm. Number four and five are just going to be like little, little almost throwaway moments that I feel contribute to the sense of magic um, in this film and the sense of kind of emotional depth. Um, one is uh, that um, at the restaurant where, you know, Sarah and Harris first meet, around which the film creates this sense of, of destiny. You know, Harris says, uh, you know, that there's only um, three places I consider sacred, you know, this place and this place and the restaurant at the corner of Sunset and Crescent because that's where I first met her and that's where I first touched her. But there's also this little throwaway moment of Sarah just sitting at the table and she regards this, like, uh, couple, this very young couple uh, at another table in like wedding yeah. regalia and 
and she just kind of has this wistful look on her face and um and the film you know it, that's all it that's all it is it's just like a little two second moment um that speaks to uh some kind of you know yearning for uh, um for love and trust and commitment and those kinds mm-hmm. of things and finally yeah uh, similarly to that um after Sarah and Harris start spending some time together, you know, there's a, a moment when, when Sarah drives away and Harris is just left there standing on the street by himself. And, you know, Steve Martin as Harris does this thing where he kind of tosses his hat, uh, you know, like behind his back up into the air and he catches it with his other hand. And the film just lingers on it for just like a split second. And there's like a piano cue that happens when he catches the hat in in midair and it's not like a it's not like a comical piano cue it's not like a like a light-hearted little piano note it's a kind of um it's it's a it's a again it's like a poignant kind of note uh, and um and it which is just it's just a, a little moment that sort of exemplifies for me the ways in which this film unlike about almost any other that I can think of, this film sort of marries um, a, a sense of kind of over-the-top whimsy and absurdity with, um, with you know, something deeper, like a deeper sense of longing and, and yearning and, and uh, romance, I suppose. Yeah, I think, you know, this film, um, if, if nothing else, wants to suggest that there's nothing wrong with sincerity and genuinely wanting something, and if the if the film does or does offer up any kind of, you know, moral judgments, it's for those people who who are insincere in mm-hmm. some way and who are masking their true desire. So the the problem with uh, with Trudy Harris's ex girlfriend or his agent uh. or you know his boss or whatever, it's it's not that they're superficial people um, or that they want the wrong things. It's that you know they aren't they aren't being authentic. Um, and the way that, that Harris, you know, is, and even and someone like Sandy is like, Sandy is Sandy, you know, she, yeah. she may be, you know, just a fluffy bunny of a person, but she is honestly and authentically herself. And so the, the film treats her pretty gently. And there's that scene, you know, um, near the end when Harris is, uh, sitting on the seats at El, El Pollo de la Mer uh, yeah. with with Roland, and the the movie is so gentle with Roland too. Yes, it's been a bit of a figure of fun, you know, and it's been kind of a romantic rival for Harris. But but you know, Roland is just so honest in that moment about the fact that how sad he is that his attempt to uh, to win back the love of his ex wife Sarah has been unsuccessful. They've had this you know passionate um, moment together, but ultimately you know it. It, it drifted away and you know his when he says they're like you know i want a relationship like you and sandy it's okay it's a bit funny that he's referencing yeah. you know harris and sandy but his desire for that real human connection you know is something that should be celebrated and the movie is okay with that and lets us be okay with that absolutely and and uh yes i love that um i and uh, i have to mention because you reminded me of this by met by by referring to trudy for me one of the key lines in this film in terms of its moral outlook is uh, early in the film, uh, after Sarah uh, is introduced and Trudy takes just an immediate disliking to her, uh, mm-hmm. Harris uh, Harris says to her, um, "I don't think you understand how ugly hate is." Yeah, um, it's uh, I mean just such a great line that I think uh, uh, you know it's it's one of those evergreen like multi-purpose. Mm-hmm. lines that's applicable to so much of of human of human life and human existence yeah um okay so my my fab five mm-hmm. uh, number one very beginning of the film during the you know the sort of setting of the stage of this fantasy version of la uh, there's a short section where a guy in, you know, shorts and t-shirt walks by with a Christmas tree um, Mm -hmm. that he's obviously getting rid of. And we know it's, it's the spring equinox, right? So he's probably had that thing in his house a couple of months past the expiration date. And it was, I just, I just loved that. I have, I have lived in LA for several years. um, But there's always a part of me because I came from somewhere else that does have a, 
you know, what's an actual a, a winter. proper winter. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> with snow and, and cold. And so, um, yeah, there's a part of me that always kind of resists Christmas or the holidays coming around and it's still being 75 and sunny and beautiful and every day looking like the next. So I, I just loved that 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 little image that we got there. Um, I, I do love, like, I don't care how trite, how cliche it may be now. Car culture in LA is so real. I will laugh at every joke about traffic. I will laugh at every joke that talks about, you know, Los Angelinos living in their cars. I don't care. I love it. So, yeah. you know, the way in which... Um, in which that is is folded into the movie as well is so yeah. great. And great in fact- line, one little line. Uh, Sarah, who is of course from from England, uh, proposes that she and Harris take a take a little walk, and he he starts laughing and says, "Ha ha ha! Walk in L.A." Yeah, you know, and he like his next door or his like, his best friend lives next door to him, yeah. but he drives to her house. Yeah, uh, which yeah. is also very good. Um, yeah. Number three on my list. <clears throat> uh, there's a moment of, you know, once uh, Sarah and Harris sort of split up for, I believe it's the the first time before they uh, go on the weekend away with their respective partners. <clears throat> Excuse me. And Harris is sitting sadly at night in his car. <clears throat> and the voiceover is, we don't always know when love begins, but we mm-hmm. always know when it love ends. And mm-hmm. I just, oh, broke my heart. Mm-hmm. Uh, such, such a good line. So true. Uh, number four. Iman. Iman has a little oh. cameo in this movie, and oh. her her only line is "twist of lemon." I'll have you know, a twist of the scene lemon in the restaurant, and I just I laugh at the idea that someone got Iman for this, and that's all she got to do. I mean, obviously, that's we don't know if she filmed more, if she had more lines that were cut, but I love that there's just this throwaway, you know, almost you know, uh, line that's overspoken by other people, like you can barely hear it. Iman saying, "Twist yeah. of lemon." It's you one know? of those jokes that you really have to pay attention to even catch mm-hmm. because uh it's all these people uh you know ordering coffees and things and harris you know says i'll have a twist of lemon and then then everyone you know all these other people rattle off i'll have a twist of lemon but and they've all ordered things yeah. but iman has not ordered anything so she says i'll have a twist of lemon like that's all she's having is a twist of lemon it's like yeah. like you have to pay attention but yeah. what the payoff is <laughs> right so yeah. good. Uh, and then my 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 final thing is, <clears throat> excuse me. So this film comes out in 1991. And it is so perfectly a little nugget of early 90s goodness. But the thing that made me the happiest was the notion that the Hard Rock Cafe was oh. ever a cool place to be. Right, right. <laughs> It was so good. So, <laughs> so Harris and Sandy go there on their date. It is, you know, like just hopping. And then we find out that Trudy and Frank uh, were also there at the same time. Um, but just <laughs> the way that the film unironically has them going to a place like the Hard Rock, um, as if, and, and that's not a joke. I right. absolutely loved it. I absolutely loved it. <laughs> so good. Yeah. Okay. So now it is time for us to render our verdicts on this film using my weird brother's patented 100 star scale. We're going to talk about this 100 peaches scale, though, in future. Mm. As licensed cinema scientists, we have determined that this methodology provides the kind of precision and accuracy in reporting that's going to allow future generations to build upon our vital work. You can find our full list of episode and rating history in the document linked in the podcast description. So, Caro, how do you rate L.A. Story? You know, this film has so many indelible images in it for me. It's it's uh, its use of music is, uh, in my mind, tremendous. Uh, for all of my... I think that anyone who watches this film should bring to their viewing a, a critical lens of gender and power in in terms of how we tell love stories. Uh, but uh, I also think that uh, I can't say no to this film's, again, its sincerity, its open-heartedness, the way that it treats uh, love and romance and as matters of just destiny and fate and cosmic importance. Um, I, uh, I am going to give it an 82. 
Wow, I think for the very first time on mm-hmm. Cinema Ball, I am giving a film a lower rating uh, <laughs> than you. And it's, it's not that I didn't enjoy L.A. No. Story. I do. Um, although, you know, I, I do have to say that, you know, as I mentioned at the top of the show, there are times when I do find it's whimsy a little bit much in a way that I didn't when I sure. was younger. So, yeah, absolutely. And, and for me, like, I can't help but compare this to... Um, Roxanne, which, as I said, is, you know, my favorite Steve Martin uh, vehicle. So it's anything that's not Roxanne, the stars, Steve Martin. Yeah. Just not going to be as satisfying. So I'm giving this film a very strong 77. All right. I, I'm still waiting for the episode on which you and I, like, genuinely, like, disagree on a film. Mm-hmm. You know, I really mm-hmm. want the, the one where, you know, uh, where we're just... I mean, because we're always at least in sort of the same ballpark. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, you know, I want us to I want us to disagree at some point. And, Me you know, too. And I want it to be pretty passionate, you know? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. absolutely. For us to be like really, really adamant about our yeah. ratings. Exactly. Uh, all right. Hey, Ebony. Now. Oh, I'm so excited. It's time, <laughs> for, it's time for you to pull a rabbit out of your hat and tell us what we're watching next. What's it going to be? All right. Okay. So. Just a little peek behind the curtain here. I really thought that I was going to be able to pull off a like Batman gambit with this one. And I thought there are so many people in LA story and so many people have worked on it. I couldn't imagine that one of those people had not also worked Uh, on Legend of Billie Jean. I was very worried about that. I I, I did not. Yeah. And I'm sure that someone is going, after I reveal the movie that we're going to next, um, I'm sure that someone's going to be like, well, why didn't you do this? You know, Mm. and and it will just turn out that I didn't do my research um, for long enough or rigorously enough. But I I didn't find a direct connection straight to Legend of Billie Jean, which is absolutely fine with me because I love recording Cinema Ball and I don't want this round to end just yet. So whatever. What I will do is keep us in roughly the same time frame. So I don't know if people have been paying attention, but we've been sticking right around the, you know, early early 90s. In fact, pretty much almost everything's been 1991 or 92, I think, this round. The the connections uh, between these films are interesting. In, in, um, In Night on Earth... At one point, there is a poster uh, in, like, Times Square or somewhere in the New York scene, an ad for Lionheart, which is a film starring Jean-Claude Van Damme. So you see Jean-Claude Van Damme. And also, I recall seeing a cinema marquee or a poster somewhere in Night on Earth, in fact, for L.A. Story. So these films are definitely, uh, yes, very much, like, of of a particular shared uh, time. Yeah, so I am. Uh, I'm not going to take us too far away from that because mm. I'm just having so much fun mm. with this current era, um, and I really think we're gonna we're gonna have a lot to say about um, this particular era of filmmaking once I finally reveal when I finally <laughs> get to it and tell you what we're watching. So yeah, I am going to take us via Sam McMurray to okay. The 1987 Uh Joel and Ethan Coen classic, (gasps) Raising Arizona. Oh, my God. Which I am so excited to watch. And also, just as a little uh, hat tip to those of our fans who wrote in to say, okay, hey, you connected Night on Earth to uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula via Tom Waits, but you didn't mention Winona. You're absolutely correct. We should have mentioned that. So before anyone writes us about uh, Raising Arizona and me connecting it via Sam McMurray, uh, you will also note that there was a stuntman named Gene Hurtline who apparently did stunts on both L.A. Story and Raising Arizona. But I (laughs) I am not doing that connection. I'm doing the connection through Sam McMurray. Forgive me my ignorance, but who is Sam McMurray? Uh, So he is the actor who, um, the scene in L.A. Story where uh, Harris is walking down. He's the the movie reviewer. He's the movie who's like, would you give it an 8 out of 10? Of course. Yes. The film. It's it's that guy. Just a great great character actor. Slice of mommy. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. He's so good as the, my favorite little character. Newsroom cameo in this. I just have to mention though is um, yes, yes. I know what is, you're gonna uh, say. Is George Plimpton uh, <laughs> who takes over the weather after Harris is moved into the anchor position, and his only line in the film is, you know, he's standing in front of the uh, the, the the weather uh, map. He says, "Sunny, 
72. That's that's it. That's that's George Plimpton doing the weather. That's right. And that's, and, and that's I believe all you need. His credit from... on IMDb for that is straight weatherman. Yeah. As opposed, of course, to Harris's wacky weatherman. So, yeah. all right. That is going to do it for us this week, folks. Thanks so much to Simplecast, which hosts both this podcast and our flagship show, Feminist Frequency Radio. Thanks also to our amazing producer, Sarah Novalis, who is like the big wheel on our tricycle. And hey, thank you for listening. If you like the show, why don't you take a second and leave a review on iTunes or wherever you subscribe to your podcast? It is super incredibly helpful in boosting our ratings and helping other folks find our show. All right, we will see you back here next week for another episode of Cinema Ball. Later. Hey, Cinema Ballers. If you've been enjoying this weekly dose of movie mania with me and Ebony, you should check out our big sister podcast, Feminist Frequency Radio. Every Wednesday, join Anita, Ebony, and me as we unleash our irreverent and only occasionally educational feminist opinions on the hot pop culture news of the day and the media we think you should be paying attention to. You can find Feminist Frequency Radio wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And hey, if you like what you hear, sign up at d.rip slash femfreak to get early access to each episode, hilarious bonus content, and exclusive backer rewards. Tune in and find out what everyone is freaking out about.